to WeChat Divorce with Karen Shalhoub, Legal Liaison, and Katherine Shanahan, CDFA, co-founders of My Divorce Solution, the company that delivers the quintessential financial blueprint to couples facing or going through the divorce process. This blueprint, known as the MDS Financial Portrait, establishes the foundation and options an individual or couple would need to make clear financial decisions when considering divorce. Each podcast, Catherine and Karen sit down with divorce professionals and other individuals who provide insight and frank discussion about real people, real situations, and real divorce. Okay, today we welcome Elizabeth Billies, also known as Liz Billies. For the last 10 years, Elizabeth has been working as a divorce attorney in suburban Philadelphia at the firm of Dyshell, Bartle, and Dooley. During this time, she's represented hundreds of men and women going through separation and divorce. In doing so, she's learned a few, maybe more than a few things about relationships and the divorce process. In addition to her family law practice, Ms. Billies also operates her blog called The Divorce Lawyer Life, where she provides her readers with practical tips to help them expertly navigate the divorce process to their best post-life divorce. So, or their post-divorce life, I should say. (laughs) Welcome, Liz. And today we're going to be talking about family-owned businesses. So that's a very unique and seems to be very trending topic right now. Yes. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to uh, be on your podcast and also talk about this topic. As we were talking before, it's um, interesting how you know everything kind of trends and for some in family family owned businesses in divorce cases and the unique um, obstacles, you know, issues that those bring up um, have been have been very prevalent recently, which has been which has been interesting. I don't think COVID, you know, not COVID related, but just. Um, have been in, have been coming up for me. So I'm glad to talk about this with you today. Yeah. So there's generational family-owned businesses. Mm-hmm. And then I guess the other type of family-owned business is husband and wife family-owned Yes, businesses. yes. So I've had the husband and wife business. I've had the generational business. Um, and all of these bring along their own dynamics. And we can, you know, um, and then I also have had a couple recently um, of uh, same generation siblings own businesses mm-hmm. um, and all kind of that all family owned businesses are first family owned businesses versus a, a, a business where partners are, are not related. So arm's length um, third party businesses, if you want to call it for lack of a better word there, there's different things that you look at in a family owned business versus a third party business. And then also we were going to drill down even further. Is it the generational business, the husband and wife business, and then the, I guess, lateral generational, you know, the sibling owned business or um, they have their own dynamics as well. Um, So, you know, and and it's, which first of all, in in the consults, what what I do when I first talk to, you know, someone comes in to see me, um, I have what's called an initial consult. And so we get into, you know, the assets that are owned by the couple and, the, you know, right away, hopefully they'll identify for me the business. Well, and, let me ask you, know, you this, list. you know, when you say you dropped it, you dropped it down from family owned siblings and so forth, but isn't it also interesting what side of the, what side of the case you're on? So oh, for sure. Oh, for sure. Yes. Because access to I would like to zone Uh on today. You know, (laughs) definitely access to information is key, or lack of access to information is frustrating. And perspective, and and perspective. Mm -hmm. Yes, I always. um, And it's also interesting when you have the business owner. You know, you have access to the books and records of the business for lack, you know, we can talk about specifically what those kind of documents are and what I recommend people should be should be looking for when there is a family owned business involved But books and records in general, it's for, for right now. So when you have access to the books and records, um, your job is easier when you don't have access. So what do you to look the, for? Okay, so you have access. sure. So if you so the um, 
it also depends on whether or not you're working with a business evaluation expert mm-hmm. um, because they will generally what I do is if I, I know I'm going to hire a business expert uh, to value the business or I think I'm going to need one because some businesses it's not clear right away if it's a marital asset or if it's just an income stream. Mm-hmm. Um, because, and, and I'll, you know, obviously, as you said, I'm, I'm barred in the state of Pennsylvania. So I'm going to talk about Pennsylvania law specifically. There is a, um, some differences in states versus um, how you value a business and how, whether or not a business is a marital asset and whether or not the whole business is a marital asset. It's called enterprise goodwill versus personal goodwill. Um, so personal goodwill in Pennsylvania is not, you can't divide that. It's not an asset to divide. Enterprise goodwill is 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 divisible. That's the that is, is um, so. In some states, the whole thing is divisible. Some states have different views on personal enterprise goodwill. So I will preface this with that caveat. Well, just to um, clarify that for our listeners who may not know, personal goodwill is if you are a hairdresser and that business is run by just you cutting hair. Or it's a personal, can you just further define how you would look at personal goodwill? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so personal goodwill, I always say is that is whether I, what can I, if it's, let's use, I always use a dry cleaner as an example. I don't know why I just do. <laughs> um, personal goodwill is, is someone coming to this business because of me. The hairdresser example is primary. And is, if I, could I sell what could I sell as a hairdresser? If I was selling my hairdresser business, what am I selling? Shampoo. My shampoo, my hair dryer. <laughs> I maybe I, you know, unless usually you rent a chair, you rent a space. There's not much to sell. Um, I'm not selling, you're not really selling your book of business because just because I, I can't sell all my clients aren't necessarily gonna stick with you. They don't have a contract with me to cut their hair. They're gonna they go with me because I do a good job, they like how I cut their hair. Um, that's personal goodwill. Um, what, about, enterprise. What, about the, what about the owner that says, well, I own this business and they're only coming because of me. They know nothing about you as the spouse and they're only coming because of me. When in, when in reality, that might be their personal perception of the business. But sure. like you say, there's not a contract with husband or wife. It is just they like the service it provides. And if they sold it, if it provided the same service, they would get it. Well, and that's, I actually had a case like that. I had it with a dentist. Um, and so it was, he was an, owned the dental practice, owned the business that the dental practice was in, obviously owned the equipment in the building. But there were other dentists in that office. So the question was, if husband stopped being a dentist at that office today, would everybody leave? And the answer was no. Now, he's a great dentist. Even my client, I represented the, the wife. Um, thought he was a great dentist. Apparently he's very, you know, I have not used his services personally, but he has, you know, had great recommendations. So maybe some people would leave, but in reality, most of those people are going to probably be subsumed by the other dentists there. The people like the location, they like the hygienist. I mean, as we all know, the hygienist spent a lot of time with you more than the dentist does usually. So in that case, we found, okay, there is probably a portion of the value that is personal to that dentist. But the overwhelming value of that business was enterprise goodwill. And and we hear that all the time. So as a tip, if you're listening and your spouse tells you that the business would go away because they're not there, don't necessarily believe that. (laughs) Definitely don't. um, (laughs) Definitely do not. I I hear it all the time. Um, Particularly if you have a, a brick and mortar location that's generally not going to be true because people like am I you know going back to my dry cleaner example people go to that dry cleaner yes they clean your clothes that's great but it's also where the dry cleaner is located it's also whether or not they can get my shirts you know starched in 24 hours yeah. they're not going because the lady behind the counter is certainly lovely but that's not necessarily why they're going there and and so then there's there's businesses that are so one way that's all enterprise goodwill no one you could you know it's co- everyone's a cog in a wheel then you've got the solely personal and you know personal goodwill, um, which are generally really one man band, one lady band, general contractors, landscapers sometimes, um, just a, really a revenue stream. There's really no assets of the business. That's a personal goodwill. I generally, you know, if I can, and I've been doing this a long time, I kind of 
you know, I'll always check it with a business expert if I'm unclear, but there's certain ones that's pretty obvious to me. And then there's the ones that are probably somewhere in the middle that are, maybe there's a little bit of personal goodwill with the owner or spouse. Um, and then there's, but majority of it is enterprise goodwill, particularly if there's significant physical assets and contracts. But can you Those define, are, how do you define enterprise goodwill now that we define personal goodwill? Sure. So enterprise, so when, I, when you do a business valuation, you're looking at what a willing buyer would, what, what a willing buyer would pay for this business. What a will, so what could I get for it if I sold it? They're not getting me, right? So what are they getting if I'm out of the picture as the, as the owner, what am I selling? Is there contracts? Is there a brick and mortar location? Is it a manufacturer or some kind of uh, company that has significant assets, you know, equipment, dental practices, they got the chairs, they have x-ray machines, there is physical assets in that business. So what could somebody buy? That's an enterprise goodwill. What am I getting as a third party over here? Now, what's interesting with family owned businesses is, and we're getting, let's talk about the husband and wife business. Yeah. You might have two sets of personal goodwill. Mm -hmm. And that's interesting. And then, you know, you what each bring to the table. Exactly. Exactly. You don't know. Say, let's use a bakery as an example. Maybe, you know, wife is the pastry chef and husband, but husband is the marketer and he's the one who gets the contracts. And, or he makes some other kind of food. Like she does the pastries and he's the great coffee maker or, you know, so without one of them, does the business only now is only half of what it was. It doesn't have that person there anymore. Um, that's a really interesting argument and a really interesting thing to try to tease out what everybody's personal goodwill is. Um, most cases, you've just got one person. Um, majority of my cases... I have had husband and wife cases, has husband and wife owned businesses. The majority of them is one person, you know, one, one, one half of the of the couple is in the family owned business, usually with uh, parents is usually the number one thing, number one that I see gener inter, you know, generational businesses. Um, well, the, the husband and wife. Go ahead. So, okay. so that is a, you know, and that, brings itself again another family dynamic right. um especially if you represent the person who's not in the, the the spouse so i had just recently i had one that was a a, a um an intergenerational business it was parents and and son um and it's what does wife know about the business they were married a long time what does wife know and so I was on that side of the doc. I was on the side of the business owner. So I had access to the information. I had access to the parents. I had access to the, you know, the, the, con the, the controller, the business accountant, the tax preparer. Wife doesn't have access to any of those things. And that's very common. Um, right. When you have a, an intergenerational or a sibling business, the, the non-business owner spouse is out. And so, but, but what they do have is what they remember from the marriage. And so that's where if you have, you know, they, they may not have been involved in the day to day, but they don't know, they know something. Yeah. Um, and so. Particularly which, the lifestyle. Uh, and also, and as, as you know, the number one thing that you hear about in businesses is cash. Always hear about cash. It's always cash, which I have found as we've moved to almost a cashless society at this point, like there really isn't as many cash. I mean, the pizza shop is always the example that everybody uses, but like most businesses now, there's just not as much cash anymore. But I hear about, you all, you'll hear about cash. You will also hear, and this is one of the issues for a family owned business that you see as, as different than a third party business is running expense, personal expenses through the business. That is something that the non-business owner spouse is going to know about. They know about, who's making their car payment. They know who is pay, paying their, yeah. you know, for the family trip to Disney that was a business retreat. They know all that stuff. Right. So what about, that, what about, what if you're the spouse and you um, assume that your husband or wife, whoever it is, um, puts his shares back into the parent's name in this generational business in preparation of divorce? So, how do you prove that? So divorce planning... 
Um, divorce planning, I have to say, divorce planning happens less than people think. Uh, in my experience, people think people plan. Also, divorce planning is super obvious because we're not in a cash based society. Like, if you transfer money out of an account, like, it's super um, obvious. Like, it's, you know, it's because it's transfer, there's documents for everything. So, if someone transfers their shares, and this is an issue also for support um, and retained earnings, retained earnings is another divorce planning tool that you will often see in a family owned mm-hmm. business. Um, but if someone were to transfer their shares back, you're going to look at, well, why did they do that? You know, what was the reason? Was it because, and how, how far, you know, what's the proximity to the data separation? So if it's, you know, six months before, you know, like red flags are going to, you know, red lights are going to go off. Why did, would you, why would you transfer it back? Yeah. No, I sold my shares to my parents. Why? Usually it's the other way around. Did I sell it because they loaned me money and I, that was my way to pay them back? Was this an inheritance scheme, which you see a lot in intergenerational businesses, usually see the stuff go the other way, is that this is all, you know, for estate planning purposes, not divorce planning, but estate planning. So what's the reason? And, and really documentation and fam- in these businesses is key. It, it really is. Um, and so businesses are, it never ceases to amaze me how businesses are run. Um, some are run really well. Some are run, I don't know what you're doing over here. Um, and so in, people think, have, I think people think, and maybe you guys have seen this, having messy books helps them. I say the opposite. Because if you've got messy books, your credibility with the court and the ability for your spouse to say, you know, make allegations and you can't prove otherwise is worse for you. And I think people, I don't know, I just have felt, I don't know if you guys have seen it, but I've so seen many businesses that way. Yeah, to your point, run their entire life out of the business. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I had they want to rely on the K-1 or the Schedule C as right. part of the income. So, and there's also then that's where the term net income available for support comes in. Correct. And so can you talk about that as it relates to the business valuation and the income stream? Sure. So first to kind of start with the premise of it can only be an asset or income. You can't, you can't double dip. Um, so if we're, you know, we're looking at the value of the business versus it's, there's a value of the business, but there's also income to the, to the business owner as net net income available for support. You always want to make sure you're not double dipping in that way. Um, and then the biggest two issues I see with business owners and net income available for support, maybe three is reasonable comp, reasonable compensation. Are you being underpaid or overpaid? Um, because it How can go both ways. Determined? So um, depends on what you're doing for your money. Let me give you an example. Okay. Um, I had a, a intergenerational family-owned business, and it was it wasn't my client that was being. He was actually being paid relatively appropriately. His father was getting a very large salary. His father is retired to Florida, and yet he's getting paid more than my client. So the argument is my, is my client's comp reasonable? Should he be getting paid more because he's doing more work and this person's getting paid more than him for doing less work? Well, that's an, you know, an easy one. He's the owner, he's the founder of the business, mm-hmm. you know, so you can make that argument, but I think that there's, and he's the straw that stirs the drink, so to speak. He's the rainmaker of that business. So he's going to get more money because ultimately he's the reason that the business exists. So so you can see reasonable comp go both, both ways. Um, also, you'll see, um, you know, maybe the parents are overpaying their child because the child has a lifestyle that they want to continue to live and the parents are indulgent and they own this business and money is good. And so they're willing to over overly compensate their, their, their child um, because that's their way of just, I don't know, giving kind of a weird way of giving gifts, but via this compensation, the way that, but then what you'll see 
is, um, and we always joke, it's called RAIDS, Recently Acquired Income Deficiency Syndrome. And all of a sudden, oh, I'm getting divorced. The business is terrible. Business is terrible. I have no, no, we're, we lost our client. We have no money. Um, I got to reduce my compensation. Love that. You know? So it's like, oh, yeah. how convenient you filed for divorce and now your business is, you know, go, is, is in the toilet. That's, you know, <clears> okay, how coincidental is that? And so let's look at, okay, well, did anybody else reduce their compensation? Only you? Everybody else getting paid the same? That's interesting. So that's going to be where I run flag for me and saying, yeah. you know, and I'll even say it to my own client, if I own, own the business owner, I'm like, this, this smells, this smells. If everybody yeah. reduced their salary, there's one thing. Mm-hmm. And then you have the issue. So that's the issue of like of, of comp, reasonable comp, kind of those couple things there. Then you've got retained earnings. This is a big one with family businesses. And there's case law in Pennsylvania about that. There's probably case law in, in other states when it, when it relates to support. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's leaving money in the business to reduce the distributions. Because most people's, most business owners, as you guys are well aware, it's, they get a draw mm-hmm. often a weekly or a bi-weekly draw, which is pretty low. And then they get distributions, either quarterly, annually, however the business does that. What I see is all of a sudden, you know, someone's getting divorced and now we're leaving all those distributions in the business and saying, oh, my comp is only my draw. That's it. I got no other money. That's it. We're making, you know, business is bad. We're retaining earnings. Mm-hmm. Now, in a reasonable business evaluator is not going to say, in my experience, that 100% of your retained earnings need to be drawn down upon for support. Um, there's, there is a, an industry standard for most businesses, which varies as to how much money you should be, should be left in the business at the end of the year. So usually a business evaluator and determining a net income, if you hire someone to determine someone's net income mm-hmm. for support, they'll say, okay, you should have 20% of this, you know, let's, you should have this much cash on hand. Um, another reason some people will have retained earnings is, oh, I'm going to, we're going to buy equipment. We need to buy a new printer. We need to buy, I mean, I like a big printer. I don't mean, you know, HP, a little $99. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, you know, you buy a printer. We need to buy a new piece of machinery to make X, Y, and Z product. And that costs a hundred thousand dollars. That's a little bit more of a gray area. Because it's, okay, do you really need to buy a piece of equipment? Are you conveniently saying you're going to buy a piece of equipment? Are you just saying you're going to do it because you want to reduce your income available for support? Mm-hmm. And then the other fun thing is, is um, running personal expenses through the business, you know, perquisites. Um, what's the business paying for you? There are some things that are going to be okay as an allowable business deduction, um, but there are some things that I've seen, particularly in a family owned business where they're running literally everything. I had yeah. a case with a dent, a dentist, not my client who had three dental offices and he did not have a personal checking account. Literally everything went through these business accounts. It was a nightmare to try to figure out what this guy's income was available yeah. for support. Yeah. And- um, because it, it, it's, it, and, and that's where I think also going back to the point of your messy books can get you into trouble because right. if he had kept kept clean books and had separated it would have been a lot easier on him and I think would have been you know he could have gotten a different result on the income available for support in his support case but when you messy it up and you muddy it up like that I actually think you're making it harder on yourself and are they exposing themselves to tax evasion or tax fraud by bringing that stuff into court is, is yes, executed upon. So it's interesting because we have, I've had this conversation with clients all the time is when you have, when someone comes to you with the messy books, with books that are not going to pass the smell test by the IRS. And I, I have had that with um, someone it yeah. was revealed to me was had a tremendous amount of a business that cash was still being used. He had tremendous amounts of cash in the business. The wife had pictures of the cash. So I couldn't say there was no cash. I mean, she's got pictures of bowls of cash in the top drawer of the, you know, when they were together. So, you know, don't, you know, if you're trying to keep cash, don't, you know, maybe don't put it in the top drawer. Um, you know, at least put it under the mattress. At least put it under the mattress. At least, you know, I don't, don't. And, and I also, I tell clients, if you're on the other side, take pictures of the cash and date it. 
Put a, put a well, newspaper what, underneath. Yeah, we tell, the them that, we tell them that as well. But you know what? You know what you said, what you're saying as an attorney, I'm going to be the, your devil's advocate. I'm sorry, yeah. but that's yeah. what I have to do. That's all right. <laughs> you're saying this and what's so refreshing to hear you say is that you're a logical thinker, right? Yes. And you're really straightforward and you're saying this is what we do and this is what we get. Unfortunately, Liz, what we see is, again, we're doing the financials and we mm -hmm. see this uncover and then we see it get into the attorney's hands. And then when at the end of the day, when they get in front of a master's or get in front of a judge, it's like, well, we didn't have the documentation client. We couldn't get you that income. Or right. yeah, you had the pictures of the cash, but they, you guys spent it during your marriage. So we can't right. really do that. So what really is a good strategy to have when you're, let's just say the spouse in this scenario going in there with the logic, with the knowing all of this and seeing it and you being such a, again, you're refreshing when you speak. So I'm happy to have you on with us today <laughs> because it all sounds so like, you know it, you got it, right? But unfortunately, and we have clients around the nation is that what happens when you get there at that day and you can't, what is the best documentation for this person to have? Yeah, and they have very limited funds. If they're yeah, not, the, they yeah. get beaten down or they get bullied or they get, you know, pressured into this. It's, it's frustrating. And that's always the hardest part because, um, as you know, I mean, uh, there are no public defenders for divorce cases. So, and there are no public defender like business evaluators. Very interesting. To determine a net income available for support. Everything is money. And I was just on the phone with someone last night. And I think I've, I've said this to you guys. I'm a I always do a cost benefit analysis with my clients. Don't spend $5,000 to get $5,000. It's a waste of time. It's a waste of money. I know you guys do that as well with, with your clients. Um, so it's also, well, what can I, and, and, and so part of it is being very honest with the client and saying, what can I prove? What can you afford for me to prove? I can't subpoena every bank this person's ever gone to. But what I tell clients in terms of what can you do to help yourself? It's a couple things. Um, and they're free. You got to be organized. Um, but what I tell clients is if you know you're going to be separating and you're still in the house, you need to act like a private investigator in some ways. So a couple of ways you can do that. If you are the spouse who doesn't know about the finances, either because of a business or even just, you know, where my banks, I mean, I've had people come in who don't know where they're banking. It was mm -hmm. shocking to me when I started this job, I have to be honest with you. What bank are you, what bank? I don't know. I, I it was shocking. I, I, you know, just as someone who's interested in personal finance is very involved in my own personal finance. And, and I didn't see my parents run their marriage like that either. So it was very interesting, but it's very common. Um, so you got to act like a private investigator. You see an envelope come in from a company that you don't know from a financial institution that you're like, I don't have an account at Fidelity. You take a picture of it. You have a safe at home. You take a picture of the contents. You see bank. I had a client who she took pictures of bank envelopes that were in the safe. And so what I did was, okay, I asked the other side, but I didn't get statements from those banks. Hey, where does your client have an account at Meridian Bank? Does your client have an account at this? I at least could ask the question. I yeah. at least had an ability to go and ask that question. Another we do the thing same is, thing. We don't care if the statement's outdated or not. If it has numbers no. on it, you take a yep. picture. <laughs> yeah. Exactly, exactly. Other is... Um, is if you're still living in the house, make copies of the documents. Uh, I know, you know obviously now so many things are digital. And so it's either maybe, you know, if you have a family computer and the tax returns are on there, you know, make sure you're, you know, I'm not taking, I'm not saying steal it, right, you know, and not leave a copy for the other person. Everybody should have both copies. Everybody should have a copy, but take a, you know, download it, uh, make a, you know, make a copy if it's a physical document. Um, whatever, however you can get as many financial documents before the split, because it's a lot easier. I always tell my clients, it's a lot easier for me to get it from you than it is to get it from the other side. Yeah. And, and the thing that your, you know, that your clients probably, you know, go through and, and it's called discovery. I think it's probably called discovery in most states is it's really hard to keep saying, I know something's out there. If I don't have a thread to show to a judge yeah. that it is. That's why you gotta act like a, you gotta help. You gotta help yourself. And a lot of getting divorced, particularly the financial side, is is organizing yourself, getting your experts, 
whether it's, you know, getting your, I call it your, you know, your divorce team. team. Yeah. And that's, you know, your lawyer, your real estate appraiser, your financial um, analysts, your financial advisors, if that's something you need, uh, a therapist, a life coach, a divorce coach, whatever it is, a business evaluator, you need those people and organize them early because you're also going to, the more time they have to suss out if there's cash, if there's a, you know, a tax issue, because, because if you've signed a joint return and now you're saying that that return is fraudulent, you have a tax issue. So maybe yeah. we talk to a tax lawyer or a tax accountant before we start going there. That's why and we believe that people should come to us before they even go to you because, I, yeah, you know, if we get their financial portrait together and they go to you then for your, even your consult and they say, Liz, this is what we have. You get to do your job. You get to focus exactly. on instead of yeah. asking them, where do you bank? And they're too emotional even to answer if they, even if they know the answer, yep. you know, it's intimidating to sit in front of your attorney for a lot of people. So when they go with our document, you get to look at it and say, okay, mm-hmm. well, this is how I'm going to help you. Yeah. you know? Well, and that's, and, and I give, and I know everyone's consults are different, but I give very, I mean, I, I think you won't be surprised to know that I give very substantive information in my consults. My consults, yeah. I, I do charge for them. And I, I am providing a service, I believe in that consult. The more information you can bring to me in that consult in a succinct way, like your mm-hmm. financial portrait, the better. Because I can exactly. sit there and ask questions off of that. We can have a productive, efficient conversation. And some people come to me and they're super emotional and they spend the first 15 minutes, you know, maybe crying, maybe talking about the emotional side. And, and we can have that conversation as well. But being able to come to me with their financial portrait and say, this is what we have. I can then start asking questions off of that. So okay, I see you you have a family-owned business. All right, tell me about that. And right. then and, I'm they can, there. and they feel empowered to tell mm-hmm. you about it. They're already coming to the table a little bit more confident than they would if they didn't know anything. Well, I mean, I think um, I think yeah. getting divorced, and as particularly if you have the the income dependent spouse or the income. I don't know, less knowledgeable spouse, maybe the one who wasn't in charge of the finances. And they feel, they feel like they're on an equal playing field now because they have that information and they're going, okay, you know, I know about this too, not just you. Like you're, I'm, I feel like I'm empowered to make a good decision for my case. My divorce lawyer understands me. They're saving money, which is always a good thing. And everybody always wants to do that. Um, and, and they feel like, at the end of the day, I always tell clients at the end of the day, you need, however the case shakes out, you want to know what happened to you and why it happened. And you can only do that with, if you have all the information. Now I've had cases and, and where they want to turn over every rock. And there's sometimes there, you got to call it. And yeah. that is hard for people because like with They're the emotionally cash or, attached. To yeah, you, but you gotta, rock. but yeah. you gotta call it. Like you, if yeah. you are, like I had one client. This is years ago. She swore up and down that the guy had an overseas account. This is before FBAR and before you had to, you know, disclose it on your financial on your tax returns. There, this was, you know, two thousand seven, two thousand eight. She swore up and down, and I looked. I trust me, I looked. And the guy worked for a company that was, was based in England. And I really think that that's where the, 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 the confusion was. And I just was like, listen, like, I can't like, look, there's, I can't look for this anymore. You're bleeding money on this issue. I can't find anything. I've got nothing. They say, you know, there's a point where you just kind of have to call it, but I think people feel better calling it the bigger, the better financial, the clearer financial portrait they have. Yeah. Because exactly. they have clarity that they're going to be okay. Mm-hmm. Yep. Another little layer to this is if a lot of that work, to your point, can be done before, there's it's more amiable because once you file that divorce complaint, you've essentially declared war. <laughs> so a lot of time, the spouses are more, initially, everybody wants to work it out. So they're more right. amiable sharing information and documentation because- um, have a, a divorce complaint or petitions, very offensive language. And well, you can't help it. It is what it is. It just, I know I was people, I had a client, I think I told you this story. 
I had a client once who wanted to get divorced. He was like the catalyst for it. We had been working out agreements. We were doing it. I always call it a backward divorce, kind of, you know, what you're going to, where you, you work out, you talk, you talk about the finances yeah. before a complaints file. I call it, you yeah. know, it's, so it's backwards, which is good. Backwards is good actually in divorce cases. And I finally, we filed the divorce complaint and I sent it to him, not thinking, uh, you know, I didn't think anything of it. And he calls me up and he's all upset. He's like, I'm, I'm the defendant. I was like, well, somebody has to be. Yeah. And I didn't even think about it. I didn't think it's like, I'm like, well, yeah, you yeah. are being sued. I mean, you are being sued for divorce. That is. Well, that's I the mean, word. That's the word you know, that the spouse gets. I'm suing you. Well, yep. no, I'm not suing you. Well, actually, in legal terms, you are. But yeah. the everyday person going through a divorce doesn't think they're suing the other person. We think of it as a very different term. Well, um, and also, so especially in Pennsylvania, especially some states, you almost can file it as like a mutual consent, like Wisconsin yeah. does that. Florida, they have different, I think, is another one. Yeah, <laughs> so they have a different, like, way, different tracks. It's like, if you guys are filing together, if you're filing together with kids, if you're not filing together, Pennsylvania is not that way. Someone has to be the defendant. Right. And so, but I now, it's funny, because you learn, you've been doing this job for 12 years. So you learn, now I always tell kind of caution clients, like, you are the defendant. It is okay. Yeah. You are not, yeah. it's not making yeah. bad. Like, that's a common question that clients ask me is like, oh, is it bad if I'm not the one that files? Or is it yeah, bad yeah. if I am the one that files? Yeah. You're actually really saving it. money if you're the defendant, yeah. you know? It's just really kind of how it has to be. But like, yeah. but I, you yeah. know, we talk, I think we've talked about this, you know, offline is that, um, you know, alternative dispute resolution is, is really popular right now, particularly because of COVID. People are, because it was hard to get into the court system, it's back up and running to some extent, but not everywhere, not every state. You know, Pennsylvania is in one place, whereas maybe, you know, Texas is in another place. Right. And, uh, you know, California. Change tomorrow. Yeah. Change tomorrow. So alternative dispute resolution is is really hot as it can be done over Zoom. Um, and one of, and with mediation, if you want to go to mediation, that means you guys are already amicable. So why not come with a joint financial portrait to show this mediator? Yeah, um, because if you don't, mediation has a very high likelihood of failing because exactly. you don't financially know what you want. Yeah, know and family what you want. Uh huh. Yeah. And family-owned businesses are tough. And I just had a conversation about mediation and a family-owned business. I think yesterday. And, and it was, it's, it's an, it's a question as to whether or not this wife is going to look at that as really an income stream or, you know, like kind of let it go. Um, and, and, well, let's, and it, let's talk you know, about that. That's what's on my list to bring you back to. So I'm glad you went there. Yeah. It's really hard to digest. And even for myself personally, as a CDFA, when somebody owns a business, Mm-hmm. that you're going to say, let it go as an asset because you're using it as an income stream. Right. So let's just take the case of Karen and I are getting divorced. Okay. Which we're not, are we, Karen? Right. Not today. <laughs> not today. <laughs> right. <laughs> I just wanted to t- make sure she was paying attention to me. <laughs> um, so we're, we're together 20 years and we have a business and now I'm going to pay her support, but I'm only right. going to pay her for five years because that's what the agreement is. So right. now I'm paying her support, but you're telling me that she has to give up the business value. Um, so in five years, her support's done and I still get to keep this business. So how is that fair and equitable? And is that really the scenario? Well, it depends. So I know just like, every, <laughs> every lawyer know. says, right? It's yeah. um, so it depends on whether there, there may not be a value to the business. It may have only ever been an income stream. And, and so it's only, that? Um, again, it, it's business, business experts are key often in times in that some businesses are obvious and it, 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 they're obvious to me, I should say. Um, so if it's a one man band, you know, general contractor, painter, landscaper, you know, the hairdresser example, where they're an LLC. But Restaurant like, owner? Uh, restaurants are maybe restaurants that they're, you know, it depends. Do you own the, do you own the building that the restaurant is in? Um, are you the chef? You know, uh, it's that scenario. You own the building, you own the building and you own the business for 20 years and now you're getting a divorce and the spouse who doesn't work there wants to be an owner and have a support payment. Okay. They want to, they want to get, they want to stay as an owner of the business. Okay. Or they want to buy out from the business and they want support. Right. 
So I would say in that example that you're going to have to have that business valued. I think that there, there is, when you do a business valuation and there's also going to be a support component, that person's reasonable comp is taken out of the value of the business. That's what everybody you don't wants want to, to know. That's yeah, because you can't, you cannot double, you can't, I'm like making a hands, you know, you can't double dip. Double dip. Yeah. So the double, so the reasonable comp is, is actually a, um, a liability of the business. That sounds bad. Mm-hmm. Like it's a debt, but it's not like, it's what you pay your, what you pay your, it's your CEO. Yeah. Yeah. So he's that whatever his reason. So we, in some business valuations, they will adjust reasonable comp up or down. Um, and so that will, whatever they determine to be reasonable comp will be deducted from the value of the business. Cause you can't get it twice. Um, if it's only an income stream, there's no value to the business. It's just income. And then you just go down the track of support, whether there's child support, there's alimony. Um, and then, you know, if the alimony is for five years, it's over, it's over. Um, okay. Can I stop you there for a second? Yeah. So this is really good information for everyone listening. Cause these are common questions that the three of us may know, but when you're listening, it's confusing. So now we have a business and it's worth a million dollars, let's say. Okay. And we're going to take a reasonable comp of $200,000 a year out of that. Okay. Business. So what the evaluator will do is they take the value of that business. They deduct that comp. Right. Because that's using for ink that's being used for support. And now mm-hmm. there's a net value to the company and that can be divided in equitable distribution. Correct. Correct. Yep. And then it's also, but then the fun part is how are we going to divide that business up? Um, <laughs> because oftentimes that yeah. is the biggest asset of the marital estate. Yeah. Right. You now let's take the, you know, usually you, maybe you've got a, you probably have a house. Um, and then you maybe have a 401k. Maybe there's two 401ks. You probably, I mean, I have to tell you, most people don't have that much cash. Right. Um, they pay out over gen- time. They really, there's just not yeah. the cash there. So it's, and the business itself. So the couple of ways I've seen it done, and and these are things I think, um, I, I you know, we talk about with clients is, well, are, is there a way to give you other assets in the marital estate? So say it's 800,000. So now it's a 50-50 split. So we both need to get $400,000. <laughs> <clears throat> is there other assets to compensate the, the non-owner spouse? If there, if there's not, or we don't like that distribution, let's say they don't want to keep the house. The business owner also wants to keep the house. Well, we can't use the house now because now we're just down to maybe retirement. Well, the non-business owner doesn't want only retirement. There's no cash there and they can't tap that until they're in their, you know, in their sixties and they're, let's say 45. So that's not doing them any good today. So it's, so what I've often done is we'll do a payout. Um, Sometimes you can, sometimes the business owner I have seen will get a loan on the business, which is fine. You know, they'll collateralize the business with a, like with a a line of credit to buy that person out. And maybe they can do the whole 400,000 that way. Usually not. So maybe they can get a hundred thousand. So, you know, the agreement is, okay, I'll give you a hundred thousand as of the execution of the agreement, property Mm -hmm. settlement agreement for, for the listeners is, the agreement that says how we're going to divide everything up. Um, so maybe I can get you a hundred thousand within 30 days based on that line. And then I've got, you know, now I owe you $300,000 more and I make, you know, quarterly payments, monthly payments. Those are not support payments. Right. And you got to be clear on that. And you can um, include an interest on that too. Just include like an interest. Mm-hmm. Well, and then also if you want to get really in the weeds on it, it's like, okay, you owe me $300,000. What if you drop dead tomorrow? Money you need insurance. Right. Let me back that up again, because using this scenario and you brought it down to 400,000 needs to go to each party for equitable distribution or your division of your marital assets. Right. right. To be clear, the $400,000 that the one spouse is being bought out who will no longer work, have an ownership that does not get included or calculated for income purposes imputed on that side, right? That's Correct. Not no, it does not. Because then that would be a double dip if you did that. So that's why. However, to be clear, if, if the spouse is considering for emotional reasons or for detachment reasons that, you know what, I don't want the 400,000. I want to be a 50-50 owner. Right. If they remain a 50-50 owner, then wouldn't any income she receive or he receive off of that be imputed for income? If they're still working at the business and getting a paycheck, that paycheck is income available for support, sure. Or if you're and any distributions, yeah. 
Right. Because if you're just remaining 50% owner. Yeah. So to the listeners, be careful. I know that a lot of times emotionally you want to stay attached to the business because maybe yeah. you don't want the divorce or you think it's going to be worth a lot more money down the road. That would be income for you. So it would, it would affect your support payment. And what I would suggest if someone's going to stay on, and I don't see it very often, I think sometimes people in the beginning think they're going to do they it. Want to. I think you, yeah. they want to, especially if it's a business that they like built together, you know, and it's been blood, sweat, and tears, or, you know, a small business, um, I, you know, then they want to stay on. And I get that, particularly if they have, they have no earning capacity, maybe outside of that business. They're worried about being able to go and find another revenue stream depending on what the kind of business it was. You know, I'd have people who, but for being in a family of business, there would be no ability to make the kind of money that they're making because that's all they're, that's, they've grown up in that business. That's what they're qualified to do. So that happens also with spouses. Um, I don't think generally exes should be business owners. (laughs) I would generally counsel my client against that. If you are going to stay a business owner, you need to have, a partnership agreement, a shareholders agreement, whatever, however your, your business is, whatever corporate structure your business has, you want to have something in writing as to how this is going to go going forward. And Liz, um, that should be done before the divorce agreement is signed. Yes. Yeah. Or, or part of, so what I've done, so I have some clients where they've stayed business partners in real estate. That's a very common one. That's probably the most common that I see. Because you can be partners in a real estate business and a rental property, but you don't really have to deal with each other on a day-to-day basis. So in those cases, you know, we will do a partnership agreement and it's in conjunction with the property settlement agreement. It's a separate document, but they're all being signed at the same time. And it's, you know, because it's even the, people don't think about it. And then, and also what people think, oh, well, we get along right now. So it's going to be fine. Or they promised me. They, we'll oh, they promised <laughs> Yes, like they promised me. We get along right now. And that's great. And I, I always hope that that lasts, but yeah. it doesn't often. And I've had, you know, I had a guy years ago say, oh, my, my ex and I used to get along really well. And all of a sudden now she's giving me a hard time. And I said, did you get a girlfriend? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and he said, yeah, how'd you know? And I was like, yeah. oh, so yeah. third parties come in, maybe they're new, you get remarried. They don't like that you're still a business, you know, owner. What if someone wants to be bought out later on? How's that going to look? What if someone dies? How does that look? I mean, there's a lot of, you know, my, one of my favorite phrases is rife with peril. There are certain yeah. things in divorce cases that people want to do that as lawyers, <laughs> I have to say, whoa, let's put on the brakes here and like work through this. Yeah. And I know yeah. you guys do the same thing. It's, you know, particularly I'd say with probably the people's expenses, like I want to go buy this house. And they're like, well, let's put on the brakes. Like, do you have the cash flow for that? Mine is that sometimes but it's also like whoa let's talk this through it sounds really nice and and that you want to keep living in the marital residence with your wife until your last kid turns 18 i have one of those right now yeah um but how is that what's that going to look like yeah these are the things play out these scenarios right yeah Yeah. like like someone you know there's so many things and and i i think as as divorce professionals I, my clients and your clients, they all benefit from the horror stories and the, the missteps of our other clients. Yeah. Um, and so I can, you know, I, a lot of my advice is based on what I've seen other people do and it's not worked. So, yeah. you know, so there's a, um, there's a ton of information and we can go on forever about that. Oh my gosh, yes. I'd like to put yeah. it out there to the viewers, if you don't mind, Liz, um, is that, listen, there's a lot of questions. If you have mm-hmm. them, send them in. We'd love to do a follow-up podcast. With oh, that'd be you great. To yeah. answer these questions because they're really important and we certainly can't handle it all in this half an hour. But right. at the end of the day, I think having the financial clarity, knowing what your options are and stop listening to everybody that's chirping in your ears Listen to your team of divorce professionals. So important. They're there for. And then you'll make the right decision for you and your family. Yeah. Right. And then I, the podcast listeners can't see my face, but I'm like preaching, you know, hands up because um, not every divorce is the same. Your friend's divorce is not your divorce. And please listen to the people that you are paying because we are not, I think people just are they think we're here to take them for a ride, but um, I know I'm not, I know you guys aren't, and, and we have the knowledge and, and the expertise to help you. Please use it. 
you know, I had a, a client say to me yesterday, you know, well, I'm just going off of what I saw on TV. I was like, well, that <laughs> show's from California. So wrong, <laughs> you know? And so please listen to your, please yeah. listen to your experts because Important. you're only going to be financially better off. And my thing I always preach is the post, you, you want to get to that best post-divorce life. And the only way you can do that is, um, is, is setting yourself up for it and financially is a huge pillar of that. Yeah. Karen had to leave us to something, but oh, um, that's right. Yeah. So that's why she logged off. Um, but it's really important. Have the clarity you need, ask the questions you need to ask. And you know what, what I love Liz is when, when clients come to us and get their financial portrait, and then we get to align them with attorneys like you, um, they get to see that you're there for their, the right purposes, because mm -hmm. you get to actually set up a strategy with them. And this way they know they're paying you to do what you're trained to do um, with that clarity, which is so important. So we really and appreciate it. Um, thank you. Yeah. I mean, it's attorneys like you because that's, and that's I really appreciate that. And, and my goal has, and I think, you know, there's so many characters out there of divorce lawyers, but my goal has always been like, I'm not here to take all your money. I'm not here to scorch the earth. And, and, you know, I want to keep families in the best position they can. Um, and having the tools to do that, you know, with, with you guys, um, helps me have those tools, helps our clients have those tools. Everyone as best as you can have a good divorce experience. That's only, that's how you can do it is, is setting yourself up and, and preparing yourself. And, you know, it's hard to leave the emotion. Let us, let us be the, you can be emotional. Let us right. take the emotion out of it for you. Um, and, and then help you make those decisions. And the only way you can make those decisions is, is knowing knowing what you what you have and, and how to move forward and, and strategy. Having a strategy in the beginning is so important. Yeah, and you can only totally have agree. that if you know what you got. <laughs> right, right, and it's way easier to keep track like that. Exactly. So we thank you for being with us today. And again, send in some questions. Liz would be happy to get on again with us to answer those, which is the best way to get the information that you need. Um, we'll have your information available um, for our viewers to contact you. And you're in Pennsylvania, and are you New yes. Jersey also? Just Pennsylvania. I am. I am barred in New Jersey. I don't really do too much there, so my. I'm best with people in the suburban Philadelphia area, but I can answer any Pennsylvania questions for sure. If there's a state that I'm, you know, if it's a, some, you're out of state and you need a divorce lawyer, I know a lot of great lawyers out there as well, more than happy to connect you to people. I like, I want people to have a good experience. So I like to do that connection if I can. Um, right. And so I'm, you know, but yeah, any questions, I'm happy to answer them. Um, right. more, the more information, the better. Great. Thank you. Thank you guys for listening to us. And we look forward to talk to you again soon. Thanks. Bye. Bye.